0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. Well, Merry Christmas, church family. Today, we are going to answer the question of how did we get here? And by that, I don't mean like how did you get here this morning or even like what were the sequence of events that led to like all of us living here in the Cedar Valley. I'm not asking that when I say like how did we get here. I mean specifically like how did we get to this place where like the world that we live in has moments of incredible beauty, majestic sunsets and the joy of children and the indescribable wonder of red velvet cake. Like, like, you were wondering what I was gonna say there about the indescribable wonder, right? But you've had it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's sin for you to not like red velvet cake. But like, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to a world that has these moments of incredible beauty, but yet, sadly, they just seem to be so fleeting, right? That like with every indescribable moment of, of beauty, it seems like as, as quickly as it, as it popped up, as it emerged, like watching your children play together and it's, it's peaceful. It's, it's like gone in a moment and things like pain, conflict, death, darkness are everywhere and inevitable. How did we get here? If you've ever had to hold the hand of a loved one who took their final breaths of life and say goodbye and then walked out of that hospital room and just whispered to yourself, I hate this. Or have you've ever watched like events unfold in front of you on the TV screen and sat there and just bewildered to like, how did we get here? It's not supposed to be like this. If you've ever like, tried to fight for just a normal life and navigate the realities of the day-to-day while just wave after wave of unexplainable, but dark thoughts just hit the depths of your soul over and over and over again, and you've wrestled with the question, what is wrong with me? Or if you've ever had to live through the awful pain of a broken relationship and sat there and be like, why? Why does stuff like this happen? How did, we, how did we get here? The answer is this, guys. Every sad and broken thing in our world is a result of Genesis 3, an event we refer to as the fall. But it's odd, isn't it? like for thousands of years like this is all we know is like warring peoples and the war of like sin within ourselves and hostility and brokenness and tragedy and heartbreak this is all we know but it's odd that this is all we know and yet somewhere deep within us has just been this seed that we can't shake that we just walk around constantly going it's not supposed to be like this isn't that odd that like somehow like thousands of years, it just seemed like this is the way it's always been. We, we, we can't just come to grips with it. There's just something within us. It's just odd, isn't it? And I do believe that there is a remnant of the garden paradise that just sits in there unshakably within each of us. Recognizing it wasn't always like this. And I give you this hope. It's the hope of Christmas. A reminder that it won't always be like this either. And so as we've been moving through this Advent season and anticipating the arrival of our Savior King, what a lot of people like to do is they just want to jump into the cute baby in a manger scene and just feel like, can we just talk about baby in the manger, Jesus? Can we just talk about that? I think what happens in that is we just rob Christmas of so much beauty. And so what we're trying to do here. So we're just trying to zoom out a little bit. What we've been wanting to do this Advent season is just zoom out and see a more full picture because I don't believe you can see the full beauty of Christmas without understanding the full context around Christmas. And so last week, Jake absolutely crushed it and started us with week one and just laying the foundation of, of our creation. And today we move into week two of the fall. And as we dive in, I just want to give you an encouragement because I don't want you to miss, there's Christmas in this dark chapter. you can't miss it. But church, the trailhead that leads to a baby in a manger, it's here in Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open to page one. Maybe you never heard that one before. First page, just open it up, flip the cover over. I want to review Genesis one and two real quick, just as a way of review to kind of set the stage for Genesis three, because in Genesis one and two, what we see is that God takes from nothing and by the power of his word creates everything. Can you do that? No, God can, but he creates everything. And with each progressive step of creation, he declares over it's good. This is good. This is very good. In fact, he says that on the final day of creation when he creates a man and a woman. He looks at it and says, it's very good. And he takes Adam and Eve and he places them as his ambassadors over all of creation and says, your job is to rule and care for everything here. For Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2, it's paradise gained. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and they know that they have been fearfully and wonderfully made. They've been given incredible design and dignity and value. And they even have clear direction on what it looks like just to flourish in life with God. And I want to draw your attention to just the last verse of chapter 2. If you've got a pen, I would encourage you to circle this. That both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. There's such peace in that statement, such freedom, such innocence. And it's noteworthy to circle that verse because just move down seven verses, chapter 3, verse 7, and just hold verse 25 in contrast with this that the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Seven verses. What happened in seven verses that they went from freedom, peace, innocence, to like the opposite of that. And those who know this story well are gonna be like, they ate the forbidden fruit. I'm telling you, church, if that's your answer, that is so surface level, there's so much more than that. So let's see what happens, what really happened. So as we jump into chapter three, we're introduced to a new character, not seen him yet, but the serpent enters into the scene in verse one. It's clear from the rest of the scripture that the serpent is Satan. But Genesis here is not interested in trying to explain to us like the origin of sin, evil, things like that. We'll cover that another day. The focus of the text is just purely on what Satan says. And you'll see there at the end of verse one, he says to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I don't want you to miss this church. This is a direct assault on the character of God. Like implied within the question that he's asking her is essentially, did God really create this incredible paradise? I mean, with all of this stuff and you can't enjoy any of it? That's what he's implying, okay? Look at Eve's response. She says, "Well, we may eat, the fruit from the trees of the garden. I just wanna pause here. Church, is that what God said? All right, you're there in Genesis three, go back to Genesis two, just look at verse 16 with me real quick. What did God say? She said, we may eat fruit. What did God say? And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Just look at those two real quick. And maybe you're like, Cody, you're making too big a deal. It's just a, a slight difference of words. Because I think there's a huge difference between the word may and free. May makes it sound like, yeah, God did create this incredible paradise. And then he like reluctantly decided, ah, fine, twist my arm. You can have some of it. Whereas free communicates what's true, that God is, is rich in generosity. That like as a good father, he created all these things. and He's like, you can have it all. Just don't stick your finger into an outlet. You can have it all. Just don't play on the edge of the stairs. You can have it all, but just don't eat the fruit from that one tree. There's a huge difference between may and Free. And guys, we screw this up all the time, too, because we can make God out to be like this God that just loves rules, like some cosmic killjoy. Guys, understand this. When God created everything and then handed things over to mankind, how many rules did he give them? One. They could do anything else. Give them one rule. Our God is not a God of rules. There's something here that Eve is missing on and we do the same thing. And this wasn't her only slip up. Watch where she goes Then, as she continues to give an answer to Satan's kind of assault. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but then verse three, but about the fruit and the tree of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Well, pause again. Is that what God said? And now you're like, Okay, you're setting this up clearly. That's not what God said. Go back again to verse 16. Now to verse 17. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Notice here, the first time she changes the word and minimizes God's generosity, now she's adding on to God's word and adding rules that he didn't give. He never said, don't touch it. Now, again, that would be maybe a wise and smart thing to do. But you start to get the impression, right, that that Eve has at least began to ask the question of God's character. Has moved away from just a confidence in God's goodness and generosity. And now at least something's there where maybe she views God as stingy and harsh. Because the battle of sin did not begin with the eating of an apple or forbidden fruit or whatever. It was won and lost, and it started here. This is it. This is what Pastor... And author and theologian A.W. Tozer meant when he penned these words, that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics, which cannot be finally traced to imperfect and ennoble thoughts about God. That's where it started for her. Starting to think thoughts about God that weren't true. So now Eve, having left the door open, Satan seizes this opportunity, he enters right in, and he moves from a direct, like, assault on God's character to now a direct and outright lie. He says this, no. Verse 4 and 5, you won't die. And he continues on, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, church, I want to zoom out here and just watch the progression of things that have moved, because I think it's good for us to understand how Satan works because this is the same tried and true pathway towards sin that he uses in every one of our lives. It always starts here. It starts here with this spot. Did God really say, that's always where this journey towards sin starts, that you just, in the end, you don't know the word of God or you don't know it well enough. You can contrast this with when Jesus was tempted by the serpent in the desert, remember when Satan showed up there? Jesus was able to combat with scripture, but it always starts here. Did God really say that we couldn't do that? Did God really say that that was wrong? And then it moves to some questions about God's character and his goodness that, that take the form of another set of questions. It moves from, did God really say, to now these like statements back to yourself like, I, I deserve better than this, or I don't deserve this. Or somewhere in there's like, God is holding out for me. God is withholding something good for me, and he's holding it back and not letting me have it. So it moves from, did God really say into that? And then it moves into this classic lie. This is step three. Then he begins to move to this classic lie. No, sin won't kill you. Because one of the biggest lies we can buy into is that sin doesn't have consequences. They're like, whatever we do doesn't have consequences. And the way that we reason is like, well, well, they're doing it and they're fine. They're not dead. God didn't strike them with lightning. Come on, we'll be okay. And we forget that sin always has consequences. And then the last step, which is really weird, it's an odd twist, is all of a sudden we begin to look at this thing that was sin, that is rejection of God, that's a turning from his design, and we actually begin to look at it and say, in fact, it might be good for me. And society begins to look at it and say, actually, that's good for you, to embrace that identity, to embrace that way of life. It makes you like God. Don't you feel like a God of your life? Isn't it interesting? Satan's tactics haven't changed, guys. Have you ever walked this pathway of sin? And understand this, guys. Sin is never as small as just like a simple bite of a forbidden fruit or a a little white lie or just a bad night with your girlfriend. Like, sin's never that small. What sin is, always is, is an absolute rejection of who God is. It's a, it's a declaration, in, like, in a bad sense, it is a declaration of independence. That I see the way that you want me to live my life, and I don't want it. The way that you say I can flourish, I can find happiness, the way that I can find joy, I reject that, and I'm going to strike out on my own because I know better And I love myself more than you love me and I'm gonna find it on my own. That's what sin is. Every sin is. It is an absolute rejection of our created identity, our design and the direction that God gave us for our lives. It is a stiff arm to who he is. We cannot minimize sin. Ever. So Adam and Eve decide to strike out on their own to find life flourishing and happiness. Church, did they find it? Have you found it? No. And what takes place in the verses that follow is that Eve eats. She then takes the forbidden fruit to Adam and he just goes along with her. He didn't need any convincing, just goes along with her. And immediately their eyes are open. They try to cover themselves up, try to conceal their sin. They begin to hear God somewhere off the distance going, oh, let's get our stuff together here. And what takes place is then a reluctant confession. Well, it's their fault but, yeah, it fault, but I ate. his fault, but I Her fault is I ate. And then we see in verses 14 through 19, the fallout. See, the fall and then the fallout. God curses the serpent. And then his words to Adam and Eve aren't so much like commands to be, deb- to be obeyed. They're like, Declarations of how things are going to be from now on. That because sin has entered the world, and it's interesting that their sin was ultimately against God, but yet it brought brokenness between the two of them, even though they were like in it together. But now he's saying, yeah, it's just, just so you know, now that sin has entered in the world, this is the way things are gonna be. There's gonna be this ongoing conflict between good and evil at war in the world around you and at war within yourself. That from now on, even just the act of trying to bring life into this world is gonna be incredibly painful. And from now on, there's gonna be a lot of suffering and toiling that takes place just to scratch out a living and just survive in this world. And from now on, there will be death. And all of these things will serve as just perpetual reminders of sin and the reality that sin reigns in our world. Church, there's the answer to the question How did we get here? It was sin. Sin on the part of Adam and Eve, and when they sinned, we all fell. And every single one of us, if we had been put in that garden, we would have done the same thing. And that sin that lives in them, lives in us. Now I wanna pivot here, church. Because that's the way that Genesis 3 is often taught, is focusing on the failure of mankind. But in my study here, and in just interacting with our elders, guys, the thing that's so beautiful about Genesis 3 is actually, I think this passage says way more about who God is than it does about who we are. And I don't want us to miss it this morning, okay? You remember a few weeks ago, we closed out our John series walking through the gospel of John and I said that John 21 answers the question how does God address failure? You remember that? Guys Genesis three is another example. How does God address failure? And what we see here in Genesis 3 is that, yes, there are consequences to sin. There is always consequences to sin, but what we see on display here in Genesis 3 are the actions of a compassionate judge. And I think we see this in in three ways, okay? So if you're taking notes, I think there's three ways that we see God as a compassionate judge in this passage. The first way that we see this, I think is the easiest way that we see this. But as I read Genesis three and then continue on in my Bible, I think for me, the thing that is so amazing, I think the way that we see God's great compassion here is that there is a Genesis four. You get what I mean? Like this could have been it. God creates, God hands the keys of creation over to mankind. They totally blow it. God judges them, game over, end. And our Bible could have been Well, that long. Like to me, the fact that there is even a Genesis (laughs) four speaks of the incredible grace of God. And what we see at the end of Genesis three, this is unbelievable, is that God takes Adam and Eve. It it is an act of sheer grace that he kicks them out of the garden and then keeps them from going to the tree of life. A total act of grace because he doesn't want them to live in this state forever. He kicks them out of the garden and then Genesis four, He left with them. Do you see that? The fact that he's even there in Genesis 4 is incredible and a display of the heart of God as a compassionate judge. It's the easiest way that we see God's great grace and compassion here. Here's the second way that we see God's great grace and compassion here in Genesis 3. It's in verse 21. I'll read it. It says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Church, can I just ask, how did God make skins for them? Like, how did he get skins to cover their nakedness? One of the resources I read this past week uh, was by uh, Alan P. Ross, and he wrote this about verse 21. I thought this was super helpful. I just, instead of just ripping it off and claiming these as my own words, I'm like, I'll just give him credit because I thought he wrote these words and said this really well. He says, it is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what the man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. That was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as a punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger, and he had to learn that sin could be uh, that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and that would grow again in the next year, but only by pain and by blood. So what Adam and Eve tried to do is they tried to conceal. Their nakedness, tried to cover their sin, tried to find a way to hide it from God. We do this all the time. And what they had to let happen was they had to let God uncover their nakedness, revealing their shame, and then not rely on their own selves, of trying to cover themselves with insufficient coverings, but actually let God provide something more sufficient. God, in his grace, peels off their insufficient coverings and gives them something more sufficient and what we see here is the first animal sacrifice of scripture or a reminder of our sin that sin equals death and all of this is a foretaste of what we see played out in the rest of scriptures it's an act of indescribable grace and the third way and I think the most beautiful way that we see The grace and compassion of God in Genesis 3 is right there in verse 15 with the promise of Christ. Verse 15 of Genesis 3 says this, and God is saying to the serpent here, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Part of the declaration of this verse here is that yes, from now on, there will be perpetual struggle between good and evil, a war that exists outside of us and inside of us, but this beautiful promise that that war of good and evil will not go on forever, but eventually it will end and goodness will win. That at some point, God is going to do something here through the offspring of the woman. He's going to rise up something from her seed that Satan, yes, will wound him, but he will crush him. And Satan will be defeated forever. If you want to know where the first promise of a manger and God in the flesh is, it's right here, church. Genesis 3.15, which could cause some of us to ask the question, okay, all right, hold on, humor me here real quick. If God knew, like already, on page three of my Bible, that he was going to send Jesus, like, why isn't like chapter four, like a baby in a manger? Like, if God already knew, if God was already promising, if God already knew that this was the way out, like, like, why then do I open up my Bible? And it's like, that's on page three, and then there's at least for me, 852 other pages of life, of generations of people living and dying until I finally get to a baby in the manger. Like why, why all that time? I'm going to just propose this as an answer to that. I don't know exactly all the ways, like why God does what he does, but here's my, my thought. And here's what I've encouraged people over the years as they pick up the Old Testament and go, what's the point? What's the point of the Old Testament? I said this, The point of the Old Testament is to give us a historical count of all the things that don't work. It helps us understand that the skins of animals are not sufficient to fully restore a sinful people to a good God. Skins of animals, they don't do it. That you could then wipe out the entire planet and start over with a new family, but that wasn't going to do it that you could give all of God's people a list of commands a mile long and say do these things and that wasn't going to be sufficient to make a sinful people good with God that you could rescue people dramatically from slavery and display yourself with incredible signs and wonders that were undeniable and yet that wasn't sufficient That you could give them a king, a king who would not only lead them in godliness, but also demand it of them. But that wouldn't be enough. That you could provide for them a temple with elaborate rituals and structures and and all of these sin offerings. And bulls upon bulls and goats upon goats being offered to cover for sin, but they would never be sufficient to once and for all repair the relationship and make it good. And you can see through all of these pages how God will bless, punish, challenge, correct, forgive, move on, all of these things and time and time again see we've not yet reached a fully sufficient solution to bringing a broken people and reconciling them with God. So that when you get through 852 pages from Genesis 3 all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, and in the midst of just these incredible promises of God, he's going to do something, he's going to do something, he's going to do something. But you get to the end of 852 pages and you go, I see all these things that didn't work. How is God going to do this? I go back to that original question, like why not just send Jesus right away? I think a simple way to explain it is just simply this. Why do you go look at Christmas lights at nighttime rather than during the daytime? Does anybody do that? Do you go look at Christmas lights in the daytime? I was just wanting to find a couple of weirdos just like, I don't know. I don't think we're gonna be friends. All right. But why do you go out and look at Christmas lights at nighttime rather than during the daytime? Because Why? you can actually see them. See, the reality of a Christmas light is that it's seen best, I'll say that, when it's held up against the backdrop of the darkest night. We get 852 pages, a historical account of all the things that don't work to reconcile a broken people with God so that when all of a sudden the light of Christ comes into the world, we can see it clearly and nobody should miss it. That when all of a sudden there's Emmanuel, God with us, that we just begin to weep and go, that's it. And I never could have even imagined that would be what God would do. All that context leads us up to just that overwhelming reality of, I can't believe it. That's God in the flesh. You know, people want to make the silly argument that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Like that the the God of the New Testament is so loving and gracious and forgiving, but the God of the Old Testament is, well, rules and he's harsh and he's judging and he's he's mean this it's not true one of the things we worship god for is that our god never changes he's the same yesterday today and forever you and i we change all the time heck most of us change just by the fact whether we have coffee in our system or not that's how like flimsy we are god doesn't change God has always been that faithful God pursuing an adulterous people. We see it played out in Hosea of a faithful husband pursuing his bride, longing to live with her, longing to be with her, that nothing would ever separate them, but they would be together. God wants to be with us and he wants us to be with him. And the same heart that's on display here in Genesis 3, where God closed their, their nakedness with some more sufficient covering so that at least he can kind of be with them. We see this played out like God's desire to dwell those people within it's the same heart that drives the building of the tabernacle. We can see this in Exodus 25:8. God had them build the tabernacle in the wilderness. Why? They're to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Catch the word dwell. It's the same heart behind God that caused them. To, to give the Old Testament law. Why did God give the Old Testament law? I said, so that I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. The same heart of God that, that clothed their nakedness who so could dwell with them and brought about the tabernacle and the law was the same heart that drove him to say, build a temple. And I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon the people of Israel. God wants to dwell among us. The same heart that promised to Ezekiel that even in the darkest of days, he made this promise to Ezekiel that I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The heart of God is a heart that longs to dwell with his people. Just like he at one time fully dwelt among us, his heart has always been to be with us and for us to be with him. I've said before, one of the aspects about God and who he is that amazes me the most is how he pursues. Christianity is not about you reaching out and somehow trying to find God. It's about stopping and letting him catch you from behind because he's been chasing you and is chasing you. Our God pursues. And so we see his character on display, this attribute of his desire to pursue and love us and to dwell among us. We've seen that played out over and over again in the Old Testament. So that when we get to a baby in the manger people, when we see God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, if we know our Old Testament well, it should be shocking, but it should not be surprising. Christmas is meant to be that, shocking but not surprising, because this is who God is. It's so people, if you have within yourself this unshakable belief that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, know this, because of Christmas, you also have an unshakable hope that things will not be like this forever. And that's not because of anything that you have done to reclothe yourself or to fix that relationship or whatever. That unshakable hope is built purely on the goodness and the mercy of God who dwells among us and pursues us even in our darkness. Let me pray. God, I thank you that today the action steps are pretty simple because honestly, the only thing we're really good at, God is sinning. (laughs) And so maybe the best thing we could do and really the best thing we could do is to stop trying to fix this relationship between us and you and to recognize you have done it. And for us to cease from action and actually to hit our knees just in pure worship. Because you did what none of us deserved. And that's the kind of God that you are. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.